Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. This week I'm interviewing Lord Chadlington as part of our series of one-to-one interviews with some of the most senior people in UK PR. Lord Chadlington was born in 1942 and after a brief career in journalism he moved into public relations. He founded Shamwick in 1974 and Lord Chadlington sold Shamwick in 1998 to Interpublic before starting Huntsworth in the year 2000. Peter, welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Thank you very much. We'll start at the beginning, shall we? How did you end up working in public relations? Because I wasn't very good at anything else. Everything else I tried I was a disaster at. I wasn't a very good journalist and uh, in the end I started actually um, from being a journalist I went and wrote in house magazines which I quite enjoyed and that led in naturally because internal communications was part of PR and so on and so on but it was a pretty crummy business in uh, the 1960s. Journalism or public relations? Both were pretty bad. Right. I mean most people who were in PR just weren't very good at anything else. They were bad stockbrokers, bad journalists. Most of them had a slight problem with alcohol intake and it was a, a pretty cowboy industry. Um, and it, when I um, started Shandwick in 1974 I'd already had eight or ten years in PR and I just thought I could make it different. I just thought I could change it, that it was too amateur. It was too um, unaccountable. The relationships with clients and the relationships with the media were entirely dependent on social relationships. And I think we, I thought we could make them more businesslike. And, and so after I'd had a, a spell in a consultancy company, I just decided to go off on my own. Okay. And I went and joined a bank because I knew nothing about finance. So I went and joined a bank to learn about finance and uh, called ICFC, which is now called 3i, and I worked for them, headed up their own PR department, and had a very interesting time. So I, by the time I started my own business in 1974, I'd had five or six years in a consultancy, and I'd had four or five years learning about banking and learning most particularly about balance sheets. Okay. So what were the skills that you didn't think you you had to be a good journalist that you did have to be a good public relations person? Well, I've only been a really good public relations person in the last few years. Okay. I, I, I think what I did was largely I was bringing business discipline to a creative industry right. so that when I started Chandwick, it was all about making sure that we ran the business, ran the company in a business-like way. And hardly surprisingly, as a result of doing that, three things happened. First of all, the quality of work was much better because we introduced rules about how we worked. Second, we became very ambitious for the company, hugely ambitious. And thirdly, we began to grow extremely quickly because we had the discipline people wanted to hire you because you had a, a reputation for doing good or better work doing good better work in a disciplined way okay just taking a, a step back to f- for a moment your father was a priest yeah. um has that had an influence on on how on your, on your working career how you hugely your i mean career? shandwick the name shandwick well, well i didn't want to call it peter gummer and associates as i was then right i didn't want to call it peter gummer and associates because 
I didn't want to have all the phone calls from the new business. I wanted to have an, a name which was, uh, which meant I could, I wanted to be an institution. Sure. And my father, who was a brilliant man, was a, started his life as a coal miner um, and was very down to earth and very charismatic. Um, in order to educate three children, he set up a company called the Shandwick Publishing Company and he used to sell sermons through the Shandwick Publishing Company to other vicars. Okay. And that generated enough money to educate his children. I mean, it was a brilliant idea. I mean, Saturday nights, we used to sit around my elder brother, the MP, or now a member of the House of Lords as well, but me and my younger brother, we used to sit around the kitchen table at in the village vicarage, and we had the had the sermons printed by the local um, newspaper, and we used to sit around and put these sermons into envelopes. And when we'd done a hundred of them, we were allowed to have a, a suite that we had in the middle of the table, and it was a, a real self-help arrangement. So my father ended up, I suppose, having about three and a half thousand vicars around the world re using his sermons. Well, how how rate every week? Well, well, they went. We used to do them uh, two months in advance. Right. So we did October in in August or September or August, and they went out in August. So the person had them for October. And of course, there's a Christian calendar, cool. so you know when Lent is, you know when Easter is, and so on. So how but, does it work? Do you, is it? Do, did everyone have a different sermon? Or no, you, they all had the same sermon, say, the same thoughts. Right, and, yeah. and the funny thing was, if you went on holiday, we used to go down to Broadstairs. I remember as a little boy. And I remember going into a church on a Sunday and my this chap was <laughs> preaching and I was sitting in the row and I said to my dad, I said, that's one of yours, Dad. And, <laughs> and it was certainly true. And uh, I tell you the most extraordinary thing. About the summer of last year, maybe a year before, maybe earlier in the year, I had a letter from an archdeacon in a, in a, a, a vicarage uh, in a diocese in the United Kingdom, who wrote to me and said, I have every single one of your father's sermons. Wow. And I have used them consistently in my ministry, and I'd like you to have them. And he sent them to me, in all beautifully annotated. I mean, most remarkable. Wow. Very prominent churchman, really lovely. And you've, you've still got that? Obviously. Oh, yes. Yeah, sir. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, well, I'm just out of interest. How, how many? How, how much was it per sermon? How, um, how, how, well, how big it was a business pound, was in it? those days? It was a pound a year. Okay, it's one pound a year to have twelve of these things right. every year, every month. But in in each uh, edition, you had four, um, four four or five sermon outlines. You had books you wore to read as a vicar. You had my father used to write a brilliant thought for the month. It would be a subject which was important to him about what was happening in British politics or in public life. Right. Uh, and he would then do short paragraphs about the a psalm. or It was a very clever and very interesting. Okay. And I tell you something. Most extraordinary. Um, I was watching The Crown on Netflix um, and I had this extraordinary feeling that my father... When um, Princess Margaret uh, had decided not to marry Group Captain Peter Townsend, that my father had said something about it in this magazine I mentioned. And I went to the 
books that I'd been provided with by this. And I found the date that my father wrote his commentary about it. And he wrote how terrible it was that this man, Group Captain Peter Townsend, had usurped his position as an equerry to the king and therefore in a position of trust as a, and still a married man to have a relationship with Princess Margaret. And I had forgotten how huge the outcry was right. at that time um, towards this kind of behaviour, which now we wouldn't regard as being exceptional. But in the 1950s, yeah. it was outrageous. Yeah, outrageous. big scandal. Yeah. Just moving things on towards your, your career. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems to me one, one of the standout achievements from your career was the pace at which you managed to grow Shamwick, um, initially in the UK and then globally. Yeah. J- just talk us through it. How did, how did you do that? I had one great advantage. I was very, very ill. Mm. I was very, very ill in 19... Uh, I got... Well, my daughter was... My second daughter was just born, so it would have been 31, 32 years ago. My, um, I, got, I did a job for Lloyds Bank, and I went to um, Kuala Lumpur for them, and I ate some contaminated shellfish, which gave me hepatitis. And I wasn't able to work for certainly six months. I was very, very ill, and I lay in bed, I remember, and I only got married for a little while, and I said to myself, I've really got to be more serious. I mean, I was not in the... I've got to think about things going wrong. And so I thought to myself, rather than just build this company, which was doing really well, I've got to build it globally. I've I've got to make it into a huge business so that somebody else may buy it and I can secure the futures of my children and my life. Right. And so that was, and I, as the, I got the better, illness, gave you time to have that thought it, process. I had six months in right. which I couldn't do anything. I wasn't right. allowed to go to work. You just had I, to think. I had to think. Yeah. And although I got very tired, slowly I got better, and I wrote a plan. I actually, I remember sitting at the kitchen table and r- mapping out what I was going to do over the next five years in building Shandwick into a global business. And, and I remember and what was that? targeting the company, I remember targeting the businesses, which countries I would go to, and so on and so on, because no internet, of course. Yeah. Just had to research them over and over again, identify the companies I was going to buy and get to work on it. Well, well it worked. Well, it not only worked, I don't think I would ever have done anything like it if I hadn't been ill. I mean, it was the... I worked far too hard at the time anyway, but it was an extraordinary wake-up call to be ill, and it was because uh, you feel invincible, but it was a terrific exercise in planning and sure. the importance of planning. And just give us a, a, a brief insight into the numbers. It went from... How quickly did it grow in, the, in that sort of 10-year period? Oh, it grew it grew enormously quickly. Yeah. I mean, we, we grew it as a private company and then we grew it as a public company yeah. and, and it, it was very, very successful. And we, But the most important thing that we did was not what the numbers were like as much as the fact we began to develop for the first time outside America global business. The American PR companies at the time were really Hill and & Oaten versus Marstella. And what they would do is they would go to IT&T, who were a big American company, and they would say, I'm going to open in Hong Kong. Will you mm. give me your business there? And that's how it worked. Whereas, of course, in the UK, 
It was just we were in the UK. Um, and so it's much harder to do that. And it's still the case today. Yeah, it is still yeah. the case today. So I was the first British person ever to try to get outside the UK and build the business globally. That was the – and get clients globally. Yeah. That I found really interesting. And you did and that it by started, started my interest in, 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 in China. And you sort of did that by, by buying, did you? Yeah. That, I mean, that we was, bought companies, yeah. uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes less less successfully. And sometimes we found – I mean, we made – we built it up, but it, it didn't have a single brand. The most difficult decision that I had to make was to say to myself, this is going to be a single brand business. Right. And because we bought all the companies, we had offices all around the world – and then I decided we'd single brand it. And I thought I'd get a lot of opposition to that, but I didn't. And we called it a single brand. We made it into Shandwick International and we went to work. And we built more and more business around the world, inter-office business. Right. And, and you need, I mean, such a long time ago, we forget that the only way you could get to these places was on an airplane. You couldn't, there was no internet. Everything was done on the telephone. Even the fax was a great new invention. Yeah. So it was a very different kind of way of running the business. Slower. Was it and slower? I, terribly much, much, much slower. Yeah. Very hard to control. And I, I spent my life on airplanes. I mean, yeah. literally. I mean, there was never, never a week when I wouldn't fly at least once. And I was very worried about the children not having their father at home. And so I made a rule that I would always be here on a Friday night. Right. So even when I was building the business in Australia, we became the biggest PR company in Australia. I fly back from Australia. I remember this weekend well. I flew back from Australia to be at home on a Friday night, and I left again on a Monday morning to fly back to Australia. Did you? So no. I, and there was one moment when I realized how important all this was. My son James, who's now 26, was about four. And I was in America, and I was absolutely exhausted on a Friday morning. And I said to Lucy, I rang Lucy on the Friday morning, said, I'm just too tired. I'm going to stay here tonight and get a good night's sleep, and I'll come back on the day flight tomorrow morning. And uh, she said, that's fine. And uh, she said, James wants to say goodbye, good night. So James came on the phone, and I said, James, how are you? He said, fine. And he said to me, Dad, you are coming home tomorrow, aren't you? And I began to say no. And he said, because he said, I, I just, just want to play football. Mm. I just want to play football. So I said, I'm coming home. And I ran, literally ran out of the hotel, got on a car, dr got myself driven to the airport, got on the Concord, flew back to London, got into London by 10.30, went up to the country where we lived. And James was lying in bed oh. in his Chelsea kit with his football under his arm, fast asleep. And I said to myself... I will never, ever, ever, ever fail to be home on a Friday night. And nice. I think it's terribly important. Yeah, nice touch. Nice. You're obviously good at, at, at building and running PR firms. Um, I suspect a fair few of the listeners to this podcast will be senior agency people. What, what advice would you give them? What are the, the, if there were three, three things they needed to do and concentrate on, what would they be? Well, I've just started. I've got... I, I'm involved in five PR firms now where I've got a big investment. I've just had a board meeting and somebody just asked me a very similar question. First thing, tell me the bad news. For the opening of any board meeting, I want you to tell me the worst things that have happened 
Otherwise, all they want to talk about is the good news, and it's at the end of the meeting that you discover. You want the bad news. This client didn't finish, this client, this went wrong, that went wrong, Joe's leaving, whatever it is. Second most important thing is management of cash. If you don't manage, it doesn't matter about profit too much, manage the cash and everything's fine. And thirdly, nothing in the world beats the quality of work. If you do good quality work, you'll in the end survive. And we are not good in this industry of trying to produce really good quality work. Or do those three things, you'll be fine. Okay. So you sold Shamrock in 1998, uh, and then you set up Huntsworth in 2000. Looking back, do you have any regrets from your time there? It's quite interesting, the selling process of Shandwick. I sold it, uh, again, going back to the family. Everything has been driven by Lucy and the children. And I wanted to be sure that whatever happened, if I sold Shandwick, there was enough money, if anything happened to me, for the family to continue to survive and for them to be able to lead a a, a good life without having a breadwinner in the family. So I was terribly keen that, that... my, th- their financial futures were secure. That's why I did that. Um, the, the Huntsworth thing started as a bit of a, a jape. I bought some shares in the company, um, and I then used the vehicle to build the business, parts of which went very well, parts of which went not so well, but parts of it are extraordinary. I had never built a good healthcare company. Mm. I regretted that. Um, and I love the healthcare space. And so I started not just a PR company, but inside Huntsworth, a, a healthcare company. Um, and although the initial management teams were not very good, the management teams that I put together in the middle 2000s, uh, first decade of 2000s, are brilliant. I mean, we built the thing. I mean, phenomenally quickly. Yeah. It, and mar- it suddenly took off, didn't it? But it just, it, or seemed to, well, anyway, had, from the we outside had one, looking in. We had one extraordinary breakthrough, which was that we were sitting around one night and somebody was talking about what the internet means to healthcare. And somebody said, of course, the thing is that we're all going to self-diagnose. You know, a lady wakes up in the middle of the night with a lump in her breast... She would normally wait until the next morning, sweat in bed, and go and see the doctor. But now what she does is she goes on the internet, she looks up lump in breast, and she decides what she's got. She not only decides what she's got, she goes to the doctor and says to the doctor, I think I've got X, and I want to have Y, because I've looked up on the internet, and what you should give me is this. The relationship with the doctor was changing. And so it was a very, very bright young man who said, we can build websites to deal with this. We can actually create in conjunction with pharma companies we can create ways in which we can create patient what's now known as patients advocacy and we were the first people to do that mm. and and it just we we were day in danger of over trading it was so good mm. what didn't go well um for a whole gamut of reasons uh, at Huntsworth was we never really got the pr businesses to work well together or just just in general terms i just i don't know why it it never gelled as strongly as the pr businesses in chandwick the 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 it and it still hasn't but the strength of the of the healthcare companies is quite phenomenal yeah um and the the three or four healthcare companies i've now got are doing very very 
well. Uh, it's a very interesting space, very challenging space, but a very interesting space. So I'm just thinking about it uh, aloud. Is it that, that single brand? You kept them as separate brands on the PR side, didn't you? No, we 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 had we said. we had we had we kept Red separate, and, and we kept Citygate, yeah. and then we had Grayling as yeah. the as the other brand. I, I never you merged a lot of others, but you know what I mean. You had you kept three different. Brands well, we never. It, well, it's a very interesting point you make. We had a single brand in Shandwick, but we never managed the Shandwick brand to do as well in financial PR or in healthcare. That's why I decided we would keep the Citygate brand okay. in financial, and we would keep we would do the healthcare business separately. Um, and I always thought red was a different kind of agency. Mm. And if you changed its brand name, it would have been different. So yeah. I was a bit more sensitive to those things yeah. than I was. Well, Red's still, Red's still doing very well, isn't very it? Very well indeed. Yeah. Okay. Um, just briefly on, on politics. You're still very involved with politics. You're clearly very passionate about it. We live in interesting political times, don't we? What's your, what's your take on it? Well, I'm very sorry that David Cameron's no longer Prime Minister. I think he was right to call a referendum... We just got the wrong result. And um, I was very supportive to the notion of uh, staying in the European Union. I think it's extremely confusing for everybody. But if I was really critical of my party, compared with Mr. Corbyn, the real problem is that we don't offer hope. No. We offer the protection of... Um, we offer the, the the conserving of a structure. And I think that what Jeremy Corbyn has touched is for young people to start thinking about hope and the hope for the future. And I think if you look around the world, that's what happened has happened everywhere. Trump has offered hope. It's the break it's the breaking of the of the elite the, the, who feel they have the right to govern. Right. Nobody has the right to govern. Nobody has the right to be chief executive of anything. So I, I feel that uh, young people are changing the world. <coughs> I mean, we didn't, can't quite remember the number, to be honest. But I don't think in any age group, until you get to 47 did the Conservative Party actually have a majority? If, if you look at the age group, yep. everybody up to 45 was actually voting Labour. Yep. And 45 to 110, they were all voting Tory. So whatever way you read it, the fact is that the hope, the, the excitement, lay yep. somewhere else. Very interestingly, by the way, the most... I, I, I was terribly impressed with the social media campaign that Jeremy Corbyn rang. It yeah. was brilliant. Mm. And the Tory party, I thought, did it extremely badly. Yeah, they did lots of things in that campaign yeah. quite badly. And, and if you watch children my, my my son's age, I mean, they spend... That's where they get all their information. They don't get it from the Times. No. And, uh, I mean, it, it's just totally different. Sure. So my final question, you, you're only 75. Mm. Um, what, what happens next? What, what are your plans? Well, the most exciting thing I'm doing, other than the companies I'm starting, and I'm chairman of four or five businesses and uh, got lots of interest going on at the moment, is the work that I'm doing in the formation of the, uh, the UK-China Fund, which we announced on the 4th of December. 
um, which David Cameron is chairman of, and I'm deputy chairman. Um, And we... I had this idea three and a half years ago when I was in China. I started my first business in China in 1977. So I'm a 40-year veteran of life in China. And I suddenly thought it would be wonderful if Britain and China could have much more of a relationship with each other and that we could invest in British companies to open in China and Chinese companies to open in Britain. And um, after the referendum... Um, I went along and said to David, I really want to make this a, a priority. And he's very interested. He's a man who opened the golden age of, of China, of course, very supportive towards China. So we, he agreed to become chairman, and I've just appointed the chief executive in China. And we will f- have the appointment of the UK chief executive by the end of the first quarter of this year. We're starting with a billion dollars in of funds in and, the, and, yet, and that you've got that that's that's we've got ready fir- to go to we've to got speak. the first we'll have a first closing which we hope will be towards the end of March right. and I think that will be sort of three four hundred million okay. and we'll bring in the rest over the next few months we've right. got undertakings from both British and uh, Chinese institutions I've got standard chartered who are our bank in core funder core helper here in the uk i've got cic in china so it'll it'll be up and running comfortably by the summer and then you're looking for for investment opportunities both in the uk and both china. in the uk and china right. and i i uh, this will that will become a, a pretty large part of my life yeah. but for the next four or five years but i've got lots of other interesting things happening in in pr i'm chairman of a political risk company i've got um uh, I've got another book I want to publish. I wrote a book, as you may know, a couple of years ago with Andrew Marr. I've got another one I'm started working on. So there's plenty of stuff to keep me out of the old folks' home Fine. for the for the moment. <laughs> for the moment, you can come and push me around in the wheelchair when the moment comes, and I can complain about how bad public relations has become. It will be a pleasure, Peter. <laughs> Peter, uh, Lord Chatterton, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.